This show is proudly sponsored by Salamantech's point-of-sale devices and software. Tired of all the headaches dealing with cryptocurrency? You don't know what a private key is? You don't want to deal with exchanges? Well, if you're a business and you just want to run your business without thinking about cryptocurrency headaches, look no further than Salamantex. We provide point-of-sale software that allows you to get paid in fiat currency, that's euros, allowing your customers to pay in cryptocurrency, that's BTC, ETH, and a host of others. Dark Side of the Hoddle Moon proudly uses the audio services of Eye of the Sound. Beyond the amazing sound production, they've really been a sounding board, pun intended, for our show giving us great customer support and constructive criticism and feedback. So if you want a little bit more personalized attention you're not going to get from a bigger provider, check out iTheSound.com. All right, and we're back with another episode of Dark Side of the Hollow Moon. I'm Blockade here with Josh again. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today. As you can tell, I've upgraded the podcast equipment, uh, hopefully coming through much clearer than my tinny microphone of the last 15 episodes. We brought on an excellent producer for the show. Looking forward to introducing our new guest today. Let's get into it, Kate. Yeah, well, yeah, I can definitely hear your mid-range and bass tones a little bit better. Why don't you uh, introduce your our guest today? All right, today we're going to introduce PJ from Blockheads. So without further ado, PJ, welcome to the show. Uh, hi guys, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. All, all right, PJ. Before we talk crypto and all all those things, can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, background, um, where you're from, what you studied, and um, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I have a pretty, I would say, diverse background. Um, I was a, you know, starting with education. I was a bio major. Um, originally was pursuing medicine and didn't want to go that route after graduating. I got into uh, sales and marketing for a, a biotech firm um, based in LA. And while I was working there, I would I also had a, you know a creative interest um, in the streetwear fashion world. And so I would do graphic design for different brands and I came up with my own brand and I would go to different trade shows and all the while I was doing, you know, the sales and marketing and consulting on the tech side for this company called Phenomenex. Um, it was my activity, you know, in my side project that kind of spurred me to go to law school. Um, I had an interest in intellectual property law, mainly trademarks, because I was filing them for myself and for clients and friends that I was working with. And I always had a, you know, I've always been entrepreneurial. So I felt that, you know, knowing the law would help my business acumen. So I went to Howard Law in D.C. Um, after that, I did a program at George Washington at their in, in their IP um, program for uh, obtain my LLM. 
And then I wanted to, I decided I wanted to go into finance. So I, I tend to get these urges or interests in random things, or maybe they're not so random, but I, I go full throttle into them. And so when went, went into finance, worked at Morgan Stanley, um, did sort of a rotation in their program where I was doing private wealth management uh, and some investment banking. And then I had a client uh, that was a private equity investor. And so then I started to work with him doing due diligence work, sourcing deals. I worked on a couple M&A transactions um, and it was kind of a natural fit because I had the background in law. And since I was learning about you know, how to value companies, uh, how to raise capital, how to put deals together, I then decided to start my own consulting firm called Selim and Solomon. Um, and I started working a lot with startups um, and small businesses uh, just because that was my, you know, my, my passion is to help, um, help people. And I have passion, you know, passion for business and entrepreneurialism. So I was just really just taking my knowledge that I had from sales, marketing, finance, and law. Um, and you could call it operations more or less because I understood how businesses are valued and how they should operate. Um, good ones at least. And so that's what I've been doing for the past five years now. Okay, cool. So it looks like, yeah, it sounds like you're quite a renaissance man. So you started studying medicine, got into law, and then you said IP for our listeners. I think that's intellectual property. Then you got into finance and did M&A, which is mergers and acquisition. acquisitions. Uh, I can't speak today. <laughs> and um, so you're into the finance world. And then that seems like that's where you got into crypto. So how did you go from um, traditional finance to dabbling in the crypto world? Uh, for me, it was more along um, kind of the traditional kind of philosophical uh, cypherpunk attitude um, that you can see in the Bitcoin white paper, just to kind of a little bit of that anti-establishment tinge where, you know, you're aware of what's going on in the world and the system and the flaws and, you know, how can those be improved? That's what really kind of drew me into the crypto space um it was bitcoin i did i did an online course i i had heard about bitcoin while i was in law school and when you're in law school you don't really have time what year is this that you heard about it i heard about i heard about bitcoin probably like 2009 i heard about it very early on um and i did you know when you're in law school you don't really have time for much else um, so I didn't really pay much attention to it. I just knew about it in the context of, you know, it's used on the dark web, Silk Road, just the negative connotations. And I didn't really think much of it. I didn't really deep dive into it until 2014. I had a friend who was was really into Ethereum and had invested in Ethereum. And he was telling me, saying, you got a legal background. You really need to look into this and you look into smart contracts. And I was like, okay, yeah, you know, sounds interesting, but it wasn't until a year later that I did, I did this online course, the, uh, it's offered through Princeton. It's the Bitcoin and blockchain technologies. And that would really open my eyes. And so once I, you know, you know, read the Bitcoin white paper, did that course and I'm not like a coder or anything like that, but just understanding the principles of it, I said, wow, this is revolutionary. So that's when I really um, decided I really want to work in this space and get more involved. Okay, interesting. So you know, what kind of kept you in crypto is kind of maybe the politics of it, the the sound moneyness, the sound money argument. Was that Would that be correct? 
Yeah, what was it that made the penny drop, so to speak? So you were, you kind of were aware of it for a while, and then was it this course itself? And then what, what part of the course was it that maybe really clicked with you? I think it was just the fact that the the soundness of money, the soundness of the technology, um, you know, removing of the middleman right? Just that philosophy of, because I, you know, when I was in, it was, a, it was a few things, but one thing that really resonated with me is that once I understood the whole principle of, you know, removing these third parties, these intermediaries, it made me think of Napster um, and just how that revolutionized the music industry. And I saw a lot of analogies between that and, and in general, more so Bitcoin, um, and I analogize that is to the, you know, the financial version of, of Napster. So it was really that. Um, it was really Bitcoin. It sounds like it's kind of a trifecta of all those things, the money, the tech, the decentralization, the politics. Uh, interesting. I think that's a pretty similar story for a lot of uh, our guests that we've had on the show. So I'm curious, uh, Libra has been in the news a lot. Do you have what is your take on Libra? What do you what do you think about it? Um, you know, that's, there's multiple layers to it. I think on one layer, um, I like the idea of it. Um, I think that it's, you know, technology is about pushing humanity to efficiency to, you know, more efficient systems. And I think that, uh, you know, a sound cryptocurrency, I'm not saying that it's going to be Libra or Bitcoin or, or any of these other things out there, but you know, digital money a cryptocurrency, I think is, is the future, right? I think Facebook, you know, Libra and their affiliates, they're gonna, if they are able to pass, you know, this regulatory oversight, um, it's going to be a game changer. And I think it's going to dramatically change kind of the blockchain landscape as we know it, because, one of the biggest issues we have now in the blockchain space is, you know, user adoption. Um, and, and there's been the kind of like, there's like a multiple camps, but you have one camp that is really like blockchain centric, blockchain focused and wants to lead with blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. But the general average um, consumer or person out there really doesn't understand blockchain. And it really doesn't matter to them. It's just a matter of like, does, you know, does this technology, does this app or whatever, does it do something for me? Does it solve a problem? I don't care how it works. I just needed to solve a problem. And I think the advantage that Facebook has is obviously its user base. And so it'll be for them to transition into a, adopting the use of their cryptocurrency. I think it dramatically changes the landscape. And for better or worse, it's going to make Facebook in a lot of ways the most powerful company or more powerful than it already is so um you know it's pretty interesting we did a show about this and honestly I think it's pretty scary prospect to just imagine uh, <laughs> one single corporation <laughs> that would have the ability to scale to basically billions of people very quickly um I think that the governments are scared about that, and I don't think it will get off the ground. I think there will be too much resistance from the powers that be. So let's see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it failing for the for those very reasons, and it is very scary that one company can uh, scale that quickly and know you know everything about you and what you're doing. 
and what you're spending your money on. Um, but I don't know. I mean, is that, you know, in the landscape of technology and privacy, is that, can we prevent that? Maybe now, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, you know, if it's, that's inevitable. It's interesting. My theory yeah. is that a lot of people will be onboarded onto crypto and then they will start to actually learn about it through kind of osmosis. And then mm-hmm. in a couple of years, they'll come full circle back to the pure decentralized kind of, um, well, it's, it's not anonymous, let's be honest. It's a public ledger, Bitcoin, but it's mm-hmm. at least it's pure in the sense that it's not controlled by a single third party, mm-hmm. even if it's a group of third parties like the Libra. So anyway, that's an interesting um, topic. We always like to talk about that. There are some other topics that we always yeah. like to talk about. So what you take on, um, well, let's say the crypto landscape in general at the moment, you know, you've been around the game for a quite a few years now so how have you seen it change over the last few years and and where do you see things heading now well yeah i mean i i you know we all saw this you know we're all in this post ico phase right now and it's a matter you know what's going to happen you have these projects that have been building or buildle or however you want to phrase it and it's you know you know we're trying to find where's this killer app or this killer use case beyond bitcoin um i've seen it shift you know i always say you know i'm sure you guys heard this before as bitcoin goes the market goes and not just in terms of pricing you know the price of other cryptocurrencies but just you know attendance at conferences um access to funds and i think that's one of the big problems i'm seeing right now is that a lot of projects the funding is is now starting to reflect more traditional finance in terms of like startup funding, VC funding. Um, I think companies, founders were a little bit, were really misled by what happened during the ICO phase. And so now it's a matter of like, who can, who has the grit to stick it out? Um, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. So I think we're in a challenging state right now. The market is challenged. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the post-ICO Wild West, I think the Wild Wild West of the ICO game is long past. Um, So you've got a background in law. So I kind of want to know what your thoughts are on crypto regulations, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And it could be talking about whatever you really want to talk about, exchanges, KYC, other regulatory issues, delisting privacy-focused coins. I'll let you take it wherever you want to go, but do you have thoughts on um, crypto regulations and where they're going? Yeah, I think I think in general here in the U.S., um, it's becoming a hindrance. It has been a hindrance, I would say, from the standpoint that you know early on there hasn't there wasn't really much clarity in terms of you know whether we're talking about how are these going to be taxed? Um, then, you know, whether, you know, what are these, you know, how are these categorized? Are they commodities? Are they securities? I, I think that, I think the U S uh, we've really dropped the ball on that one. And I think other, um, localities, you know, places like whether it's, I don't know, some of these small principalities that are just set up as tax havens mind you or other you know governments that are more friendly towards crypto i think we're 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 dropping the ball in that sense and i think 
I don't know if it's too late, but it seems like that we're missing a big opportunity there to kind of like lead this revolution. Um, and I think that we should take a more pro crypto stance, pro blockchain stance. I mean, I agree. I agree strongly with what you said there. I mean, it's hard to use cryptocurrency when you're supposed to um, log every transaction as a taxable <laughs> occurrence. And um, I mean, we are seeing some bright spots with um, Wyoming kind of being pretty crypto friendly in a few other states. But yeah, um, if the federal government um, doesn't loosen up things and make things clearer, um, yeah, capital is going to going to flee and um, companies are going to go to more um, hospitable um, areas. Yeah, I completely agree. And what are your thoughts about decentralized exchanges then? So that's quite an interesting space that was really, really, like, uh, I would say, a hot topic at the end of 2017, start of 2018, but never really seemed to get any kind of adoption in the market. So what do you think about decentralized exchanges? Is there just no incentive for the, the creators of the decentralized exchange so they just never really make it a competitive product? What are your thoughts about decentralized exchanges? Well... I'm, you know, I'm for them. I, um, I wor worked with a client, um, Total. They're a DEX. They started as a DEX aggregator. I, I think they're now a full-fledged DEX. Um, so I, I, I like the idea of decentralized exchanges. I think the, the problem that they have is that the value, unless you're, unless we're going to look at just ease of access of trading, um, you know, these, these crypto assets, the value is more, there's a, there's a philosophical value to it, right? The fact that you own your keys, you own your crypto, it's not sitting on some other exchange. Right. Um, and that's a sophisticated point. So more or less the challenge that they, that they're part of the challenge that they have in terms of adoption is you need your, your client base has to be somewhat sophisticated to really understand the value of that, right? Because if somebody's new onboarding into the crypto space, they're probably going to use, I mean, more than 99.9% positive, they're going to use Coinbase or they're going to use Kraken or, or, or one of these other exchanges, right? So there's that challenge. And then I think the other challenge is just, you know, I think we're going to see more of it to come is like, how do you, are they in violation of security laws if they're allowing users to trade what um, the SEC might deem as you know, unregistered securities? You know, so you, you're seeing some other exchanges that have delisted um, different projects um, that are, you know, like Coinbase, for example, because they're sort of like this golden child, right? Um they're very particular in terms of what projects get listed there with the DAX, with the, with the DEX, who, who's going to bear that responsibility, right? Who's going to be liable for, for that? I, I think, I don't know if, that, if they're thinking about that, but I, I'm thinking about that, like, oh, that's, that's a kind of a tricky situation. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of sense. Um, that's one of the topics we wanted to expand on a little bit. What do you think about the um, delisting of some of the privacy coins? So, you know, there's a big um, debate in the crypto space about privacy being central, especially in in the sense of it being a decentralized uh, approach to finance, like decentralized finance, DeFi. 
But when you've got privacy coins, it adds that extra layer of security and anonymity to uh, transactions. And this really seems to terrify the regulators. So what are your thoughts about all of the delisting of the privacy coins that have happened recently? Um, it's it's one of those things, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that government is going to tend to overreact. Um, you know, I mean, I understand the notion of, okay, why governments want to delist or, or want to prevent the proliferation of um, privacy coins that are, that may be very, you know, completely anonymous or very close to and in full anonymity um, and the inability for them to track transactions. Okay. In principle, I understand that. And in practice, though, the, the amount of money that's laundered through cryptocurrency is insignificant to the amount of money that's laundered, um, you know, through U.S. dollars, right? So it's is it an overreaction? I, I definitely believe so. Um you know, I, I definitely believe in the idea of the principle of privacy. Um, and there's certain things that, you know, technology is, is a tool. And I think part of the things, and this is one of the things I learned in law school, um, a lot of times when you have new technology or you have these issues come up, people who are against a topic or, or, or a technology or some right or what, whatever the case might be, they will often say, um, we're doing this to protect children. They'll often say, oh, you know, we're trying to prevent, you know, trafficking of, of sex slaves, trafficking of children and those sort of abuses. So they'll really they'll immediately, it's an emotional play and they'll get the general public to react when in actuality, um, you, you banning this technology or you banning this is not going to prevent that activity from happening. That's going to happen regardless and it is deplorable disgusting however we shouldn't ever use um prohibition um a as a means to to prevent the benefits that come with this technology and the benefits outweigh the negatives i mean should we ban us dollar because people you know traffic um drugs and children or whatever the case may be with dollars no should we ban um, Ford from making vans because, uh, you know, kidnappers use vans to kidnap people. Yeah, no. should, should we ban knives because <laughs> right. people can be stabbed? Yeah. Well, they're doing that in the UK. Yeah, should we ban uh, vape pens because a couple of kids bought illegal Chinese uh, <laughs> vaping supplies that were unregulated? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. It's like... Um, Logical fallacies from the media and the government are a dime a dozen, but you know mm -hmm. sometimes if you keep hearing that over and over again, people believe it. Yeah, half the time I talk to people about Bitcoin, they either say, "Oh, it's magical digital money," or it's like the the cash. It's the money used by criminals, and right. most people don't know it because if if all they do is listen to the mainstream media, they don't understand it at all. Right. Yeah, it must be quite scary for a lot of people. If they don't really understand the tech and they see it as this like privacy money that only criminals use, then it actually scares away lots mm -hmm. of potential people from joining, you know, into this brilliant revolution that I see is going to change the world, especially with uh, Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is going to be the new gold standard, new gold 2.0. But when it comes to um, these scare stories, there was, there was a recent scare story in the news last week about the um, 
there was a video site that people were paying in Bitcoin and it was just all of the words in the article were really, really scary. They were like, it's used by pedophiles, it's used by traffickers. And I would not be surprised if, you know, crypto sentiment follows those types of stories uh, in the mainstream. And it's a real big shame because, and I've said it before, it's a public ledger, fellas. Like Actually, Bitcoin is not great for cr for criminals. Exactly. In fact, it's the opposite. Actually, I saw that story, and actually, I think they caught those people because they paid in Bitcoin. I actually think they were they were tracked through their Bitcoin addresses. Exactly. So there's a strong argument to be made that actually, if there are any really nefarious things going on on the Bitcoin network, that in fact, it's better for law enforcement and it makes it much more transparent for law enforcement to basically find who the bad guys are. And they only really need to start looking if there's any bad behavior. Otherwise, they won't really need to pay attention to it. So I think there are actually strong arguments for more adoption of Bitcoin rather than less adoption of Bitcoin. Anyway, I digress. Let's move on to a different topic. Okay. And let's make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more fun. So, uh, PJ... What are your thoughts on the market for the next, um, let's say, the next year in 2020? Are you bullish? Are you bearish? How do you feel about the the overall markets in the cryptocurrency space? You know what? I, I don't I, I don't want to disappoint you. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of things that I thought would um, happen that would kind of lead to you know, more participation from kind of like these institutions. We've been, we've always been, I'm sure you guys have heard about all these institutions that are sitting on the sideline wait, waiting to invest um, in, in Bitcoin and other cryptos. You know, I, I think we're going to see more of the same I, I, this next, in 2020. Um, I don't know what news is kind of pending that's going to lead to broader investment. I, I just think that, it also depends on where kind of the global economy goes. We're, you know, we're hearing rumblings of, rumblings of global recession. Um, who knows? I, I mean, I, I think the price of Bitcoin um, is kind of going to stay kind of in this belt between, say, 6000 and and, and 15000 um, I don't think it'll reach up to, you know, the high point. I think it was in, what was it, 2017? Um or end of 2016, I can't remember, but um, yeah, I, I I think it's gonna more or less be flat. I I don't, you know, there there could be some growth, but I don't see it being kind of astronomical where people have been calling for like a hundred thousand. I don't think it's gonna happen just yet. Okay, all you, right, cool. yeah, you're you're a little bit more bearish than most of our guests, but uh, I I like hearing different perspectives. I'm I'm a little more bullish myself, um, and Josh is. Uh, kind of got a wild uh, range of lows and highs, but uh... yeah, I think the the low is going to be six k, and I think it was going to happen relatively soon, and then I think we're going to see an explosion all the way up to like eighty, eighty six, eighty six thousand in twenty twenty, especially post halvening. So the halvening is coming up in around mm. May of next year. I think that this is a reliable trend that you can basically take it home to the bank what are your thoughts about the halvening do you think that it will have the same effect as it's had the previous times or do you think that was just a unique event for those times and it you know the past doesn't equal the future that type of thing i'm not going to say that it can't that the past won't be prelude 
Um, but I, I, I think there were some other factors going on. I think, you know, I, I can, I, I would say this, I, I do think, say if there is, um, wider spread economic issues in kind of like the, the Western economies, I, I do think that, um, or, or in Asia, China, I do think that we'll see more, you could see rapid investment. And I do think, okay, that 86,000 or a hundred thousand, that is, that, that is a, a possibility. Um, I just don't know, you know, if we, if I just don't know if we're ready for that, if there is an infrastructure in place that, okay, if people invest in Bitcoin, is it more of like, or buy more Bitcoin? Is it more to store their wealth? Or is it because there is a need to use and transact in this currency? And that there's a couple of different scenarios that could play out. So, um, to answer your questioning, whether the happening will, you know, lead to, you know, a big jump, price jump, it's possible. It's possible. I could see it happening, but I think it would depend on a couple other factors, external factors. All right, cool. Um, I got a question. You kind of mentioned this about this when you were talking about Libra, but we talked a lot about um, obstacles to mass adoption. So I'm kind of wondering... What do you think are the biggest, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to mass adoption? Do you think it's education? Do you think it's having um, easier user experience, user interface, um, more user-friendly wallets and exchanges? Um, what is preventing people from getting into the market? I think it's, I think it's the use case. I think user interface that's improved. I mean, the user interface matters if we're like, if you were, if someone were to create like a, I don't know, a, a decentralized social network, right? Um, I think user interface would matter because, you know, social networks or something that are something is something that's commonly used. So if you're going to have a competitor to, you know, and I, I don't know how feasible a decentralized social network is, but just as for sake of argument, it would have to be something that would be as appealing as a Facebook or an Instagram or a TikTok, right, for people to use it. So I think it depends on kind of the, the market that you're in and the use case, you know, and the competitors there place kind of more emphasis on how good your, your, your UI has to be. But I think just in general, I think it's it, I think it's the use case. I think as far as cryptocurrency, uh, you know, digital money, um, it's hard for us in the West to transition to it because there's dollar dominance, there's euro dominance, there's existing currencies that people are accustomed to, and and in their mindset, and, and probably objectively more stable, right? Um, but in other places where, like, say, Venezuela, Iran, where they're experiencing economic uh, turmoil, people are turning to cryptocurrencies, right? So I think the use case is money. The first one is just a matter of how do we transition to that here in, in the West or, or, or in Asia and broader things. I think Asia, in terms of, um, like, being set up for that is is easier because if you look at like china um everything is done on your phone mobile right i think now in the u.s we're you know we're starting to get used to that um but yeah that's those are my thoughts 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, we talk about Venezuela a lot on the show. Yeah, the U.S. dollar is relatively stable, but in Venezuela, Dash and Bitcoin Cash were kind of a crypto lifeline for a lot of people, literally mm-hmm. saving lives for sure. Yeah, All right. Yeah. So this we've covered a lot already, but we haven't yet talked about probably the main part of this show, which is uh, your company, right? So let's get into your company a little bit, and you could tell the uh, the listeners about Blockheads and what it does and how you help them and all of the good stuff. So um, you can take that where you want. So maybe you can introduce how you got involved with Blockheads or how you started it and and who you've worked with and all of that good stuff. Yeah, um, no problem. So. Blockheads, um, so I mentioned earlier, I started my consulting company, Salim and Solomon, and I worked, since I had a background in finance and law, and as well as sales and marketing, I started doing a lot of operations consulting with different companies, and that would span from helping them raise capital, to structuring contracts, to, uh, you know, to things as mundane as creating you know, pitch decks or what have you are managing their, you know, their accounting, managing their books. Um, I then, you know, fell down that crypto rabbit hole and I wanted to work with um, blockchain projects. So I started consulting with a number of different projects. One of the early ones that I worked um, with was uh, one is called Receipt Chain. Another one is um, FollowCoin. There were a couple different projects that I got involved with, and then I started working with a company called it. They became a client, Melrose PR, and they were a crypto PR firm. Um, and I ran the operations there for for over a year. And while I was doing, you know, running operations there, I really saw a lot of different projects come on. And I one of the issues that I noticed is that there were some great technologies, um, but they were having issues finding users. Um, as well as, you know, growing their community. So, you know, I decided that I would focus on community building and user acquisition. So that's what we do. You know, that's that's the primary focus of Blockheads is um, growth hacking, user acquisition, um, and community building for blockchain projects. Um, that's our real focus there. I, I got a team of experienced community managers. Um, you know, i I understand marketing uh, strategy very well, having worked in a number of different industries um, and, and really, you know, working in kind of the fashion space. That's where I get a lot of my creativity and I, you know, understand the music space as well. So I use a lot of the kind of strategies that are used in music and fashion and bring them over into the blockchain kind of tech space. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, we see a lot of well, I've seen a lot of great projects that have little to no marketing or bad marketing, but if they had good marketing, maybe they'd be a big project. On the other hand, I've seen horrible projects that <laughs> are full, like basically vaporware with amazing marketing, but really no no project. So I think it cuts both ways. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's awesome that you're trying to help um, good projects find users. You know, like, you know, me and Josh have this great podcast and we're trying to scale up and find some more listeners. So maybe you've got some advice for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can definitely talk about that offline. But I mean, I think what you guys are doing is great. I think when it comes to like, you know, just to dive for, for a second with, you know, podcast, um, it's just creating content and being consistent. The users will the users will come if you build it, they will come. Yeah, we immutably broadcast every week. Don't worry. (laughs) 
Yeah, we've been pretty religious about that. We've been broadcasting every week, at least once a week, sometimes even twice a week, if uh, you know, if we can fit it in. So we're just trying to improve the podcast week by week. Hopefully the listeners are enjoying the guests that we bring on, and hopefully the topics are always interesting. So that's good. We'll talk about that a little bit more off air. But um, just to drill down a little bit more into what it is that Blockheads does, obviously it's a it's marketing, but, you know, when you're a marketer, it's kind of a double-edged sword, like um, like Cade mentioned. If you do a really good job and you get thousands of users, do you feel like sometimes you're obligated to do lots of due diligence on the project that you're working with? Because, again, you might be promoting a project that you don't know too much about because as a marketer, you, you know, you're running a business. You want to work with clients. You want to help them. You're always working on, let's say, a... Um, good faith basis you expect them to have good faith and they expect you to have good faith so you don't really want to challenge the ethics of the people that you're working with right so how do you juggle that dilemma of especially now that you've got the knowledge of blockchain that you have when you see a project that you think all right this is nearly going to be on the edge of i don't know is it even necessary to have a token what do you do in those situations that are really kind of um a bit of a moral dilemma that perhaps maybe two years ago it wouldn't have been a dilemma because everyone was new and you, you you didn't have the experience. But now what do you do with the clients that you think, all right, go back to the drawing board on the tech side? Do you ever have that? Um, you know what? I, I do. I, I try to avoid the moral dilemmas um, because, you know, I know enough about the space. I've, I've worked in finance. I, I can spot you know, the sham projects, the vaporware pretty quickly. So I do my best to avoid those. And I can say that I haven't any, you know, the projects that I've worked with have been legit, have, you know, technology, at least have an MVP. And that's kind of like the main thing that I look for is, do you have an MVP? And then really, I look at the people around them. I think where a lot of projects nowadays, where they're going to hit you know, hit a wall. And what I've seen is that they, they, they can have tech, they can have an MVP because if you have some good funding, you can always find, you know, a team of developers, right. Um, even if you have decent funding, you can find, you know, the talent out there, the tech talent is there. It's the leadership is, is what I've noticed is that if you don't have a CFO, if you don't have a COO, or if you don't have somebody on your team that has experience in the marketing that you're, you're in the market that you're going into, that's kind of more of a red flag. Now, I think back in the ICO phase, you know, like Cade mentioned earlier, there was a, you've seen a lot of bad projects with good marketing, and they were able to make a you know raise a lot of money, and then they didn't deliver, right? And so a lot of people were left holding the bag. I think, I think we're beyond that now. I think now it's people can build you know, projects or build an MVP to show that, Hey, invest in us. Now the problem is, is the leadership is that do your, does your, does your CEO have experience in this market? Um, do you have a team of people? Do you have advisors? Do you have connections in that industry to grow? Because that's traditionally how things are done. Traditionally, if you have a project and you don't have a, a CTO, um, you know, a strong CTO, a strong engineer, or you don't have, you know, connections, or if you don't have people that have experience in that market, nobody's going to invest in you. So I think that's kind of the, the new red flag that I see now is how strong is your team? 
Yeah, that's important, I think. And we're going beyond just having like a team list with a, a link to LinkedIn, right? <laughs> we're, we're talking right. about um, real experience that is verifiable. I think that that's mm -hmm. really important. And having the key people in place, like a CTO, CFO, COO, as well as a, like a CEO that actually knows what he's talking about, you can get a good combination of a C-suite and they could really... You know, they can really go a long way. I, I agree with that. It is about people. Having good people that know the industry really well back to front is important. Um, I completely agree. I couldn't agree more, actually. All right. Yeah. Well, that that's all interesting, but I need to hear something a little bit more spicy. It sounds like you've done a good job of choosing good projects, but without specific, specifically naming any companies or people. Can you tell me about any uh, crazy teams or crazy projects that, um, pitched ideas to you that you had to turn down? <laughs> there's a, I mean, there's been a lot of that. Um, I mean, I think you, you can, you know, I, you can go to any conference and you can find somebody trying to sell something crazy. I'm trying to think now of what's the craziest, wildest one. Yeah. One um, or two that stick out to you. I'm sure you have at least one or two. Someone was trying to, Someone was trying to um, use a blockchain to, it was something to do with like shrimp, uh, sh uh, like a shrimp farm, something that had n n like, and it wasn't even like necessarily with supply chain and, and understanding that it, it was just really basic and it didn't make any sense. Um, so that was one of them. There was, there was a shrimp farmer out there that was trying to raise money and then you know, there's people that are trying to, you know, use blockchain, not so much now, but I do remember there was another project where someone was trying to, um, they were trying to do something in entertainment, um, with movies and block, you know, I, I wish I had something new offhand. I would have something for you. I, I can go back into my notes and there's been some crazy things out there. It'll come to me, but shrimp farming, that, that was one. Yeah, that's yeah. It sounds like it was even related to inventory tracking. It was just something completely off the wall. That's pretty, uh, pretty funny. Yeah, maybe someone just gave him advice like this is the new way to raise money. So just put the word blockchain right. shrimp, and then they yes. <laughs> there was somebody that was recently trying to raise money around uh, gaming and blockchain, but the game was something that was on a piece of paper. It was like gibberish. There's a lot out there. All right. I think we can transition to a topic that actually piqued my interest when you mentioned it. And that was about, uh, you know, fundraising, because a lot of people are interested in fundraising. How do you approach VC funds? How do you approach angels? How do you go for the private rounds in crypto sales? What would you recommend is the right steps that people should take? How should they protect themselves when they're being approached by, um, well, people that are looking to raise funds? Um, how can you verify their authenticity? And also on the other end, if you um, are a project and you want to raise funds, what are the right steps that you'd recommend people take in order to find those good investors? I think <laughs> it starts with. Um, building relationships, right? I think if you want to get on the radar, uh, you first do your research 
uh, into the VCs that you're looking at and see, you know, what have they invested in? What markets are they interested in to determine if there's a fit? And then you got to take a soft approach. You can't just send an email and say, hey, this is what we're raising in our Series A or our seed and whatever. You, you, it's almost like, um, you know, if you're dating and you're pursuing someone, you know, you you have to there has to be some finesse to it. So I just, I just say, here I am, check me out. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, it depends what you're looking for, right? That could work. Um, but you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the venture capital world, you, you have to build a rapport. So it's maybe, you know, going to a pitch event um, and meeting somebody there doing your research. You got to kind of stalk them. In a way, I know that sounds bad, but you have to kind of do dating do. analogy is really interesting. I think it's <laughs> right. quite an interesting <laughs> one. And you just right. made me have this idea: like, what about a Tinder for for projects yeah. looking for quick funding and, and Tinder VC? Uh, there you go, Tinder VC. That would work. Like, you just you you get thirty seconds elevator pitch. You have to record your video, and then basically people swipe right or swipe left if they like your idea. Right. Like, that would work, man. I think we've just I think launched a new work. business right now. I think one, so. One wow. night capital injection, baby. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I think, and this is, if you don't have a relationship, because a lot of, like, money is trust, right? And a lot of times, if you're not in that circle, you have to figure out a way to get in and not be off-putting. And I've seen, I, I've seen a lot of things that don't work. When people are overly aggressive and just not, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's really like about the relationship in that it's more than just money. Um, it's like, well, what is this going to do for their portfolio? What is this going to do for them long term? Right. So it's really figuring out a way to, to create a relationship. And once you have and then not only do you have to do that, because it's a two part problem, it's the relationship and it's the product. You know, sometimes if you have a product that's just mind blowing, everybody's going to be coming after you. Right. But if, you know, if it doesn't immediately, you know, scream bells and whistles, you, you have to have a good product. You're going to, you know, people are going to want to see some sort of traction. Right. So you, you have to do a lot of work. And I mean, quite honestly, quite honestly, um, if you have something good, you want to take it as far along as you can before you accept any money. Because really, you want to have more equity for yourself. So I think that's, you know, that would be my advice is, you know, money is, you know, raising capital. You should look at that. A lot of times people look at it as kind of like, because it's glorified Silicon Valley, all this. And people look at it as that, that's kind of like the number one option or something I need to check off the box on. When in reality, you should take it as far as you can. And if you can avoid taking it, you should, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Would you say then, um, if you could describe, I don't know, a, a perfect VC funding stage where you just give up the right amount of equity and get the right amount of funding. Let's say it's a project that is looking just to target the United States market. Um, it's already got a team of 20 people. Mm -hmm. They've They've just got enough to basically pay payroll for the next 12 months they've got a decent burn rate and what would you recommend them do would they go the vc route would they just keep 
grinding themselves for the 12 months. There's a lot of dilemma that um, a lot of the projects are in this position where they've got like a medium-sized team. They've got enough money for about a year. Um, would you recommend they just burn through that money and try and make it work without any funding? Or do you think that 12 months, that's critical and you've got to get funds into the company now and you've got to start raising money? The CEO should switch his hat to the amazing uh, the raising money hat what do you think about that yeah i mean i think in, in, in that situation you know and I, not knowing more details or what the prospects are in terms of you know pipeline and you know customer acquisition i mean i think the ceo if you're if you're at a year at a year point and you know you also have to consider okay well what if you know what if we lose customers what if we lose clients right and then that you know how much time do we really have right so I think at that point, the CEO has to really look at getting a capital injection um, and then hand things over to the COO to really kind of run and operate the business to, to maintain and acquire more. So you have to fight that war on two fronts. I, I mean, it is, it is a huge dilemma, but I think it goes back to having having a strong team to kind of get out of that situation. I think you are a situation where you do need to to raise capital when you, you know, when you've got 12 months of burn left um, because things don't always go according to plan in a startup world. So yeah, today it might be 12 months, but there could be an unforeseen cost that happens or, you know, you lose a client. Right. So yeah. Yeah, that's true. Especially in crypto when many projects have actually just uh, raised Ethereum and then they haven't actually, there you go. They don't have the right <laughs> treasury services in place. They right. Got a, a custodial partner that can, kind of mitigate the volatility a little bit right. and you know i saw that myself firsthand um, we raised a lot of money in the project i was working and then the ethereum price crashed from around 2000 down to 70 so that was a <laughs> bit of a shocker you know yeah. when you had thirty-four thousand ethereum on a couple of ledgers and then suddenly they're <laughs> well they're not worthless but they they are worth a lot less than they were so it was um quite interesting to see the panic about uh, on the c-suites you know their mind about how do we handle this whereas if they would have just planned it a little bit better uh -huh. um, like you've mentioned then that could have been avoided so that's quite an interesting uh, take that you've got there and i've got another question it's about um it's about what you'd recommend new project uh, new products how they how they should uh, approach the market new projects i should say in cryptocurrency space because like you mentioned 2017 was all about the ico 2018 was a long bear market with let's say some new experimental words that were thrown around like ieo and sto which didn't really deliver the same amount as um, as an ICO did for projects. And then it's gone full circle back to basically VC funding and exchange for equity rather than than tokens. Because look, tokens don't really give equity to anybody and people have realized that. So so if you're a new project and you, you've got a good idea, is it even possible in 2019, 2020 to go forward with your idea and, and raise money in a decentralized way? Or do you think you, you've got to go back to the traditional raising capital routes? I think you can, I think both, I think what we've seen now and what that crypto winner did is, is kind of weed out um, the weak projects. I think now you have to have a solid project and 
it, the money can come from decentralized sources, um, you know, or, you know, crypto investors, um, you know, these crypto millionaires or crypto billionaires, if there's still any out there, right? Or traditional finance. I think you have your option. I think it's, you have, I think it's about the quality of the project, just the quality of the team and what problem are you solving? I think that should be the most, the, the important focus and kind of the lesson we take away from what we've seen over the past four years. That makes sense. So then that leads to the next question, which is what do you think are the biggest problems remaining to be solved in cryptocurrency then? Because that would be a business idea right there. Yeah, I, I think right now, um, being in California, I think what I would like to see is I, I would think, I, I think in the cannabis industry and just the way the state regulations are set up, I think blockchain provides a perfect solution when it comes to um, tracking, um, you know, from seed to store um, cannabis, because, you know, you now, you now have a, you know, it's legal in the state um, recreationally, and you have a lot of cannabis is popping up. Um, the state mandates that um, all transactions involving um, the plant, the flower, it are tracked. Um, it, you know, there was a system, I forget what it's called. There was a company that won a contract, but I think blockchain as a, a supply chain solution um, is perfect for this industry. And I, you know, I, I'd love to see someone step to the forefront um, there. I think that's a huge opportunity. I, I think um, identity tracking is also another huge opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think there's already a lot of projects that are doing inventory tracking, so maybe one mm -hmm. of them could tackle it, or maybe it could be a new project as well. Yeah. Yeah, especially that particular industry, that really requires, I think, um, you know, a U.S. company. There are lots of Asian projects that are working on, you know, supply chain management blockchains, but because they're Asian, I think they can't even go to like the, even if it's medical marijuana, they couldn't do anything, even regarding cannabis at all, because of the, I don't know, the perception of of marijuana in Asia is pretty bad, even if it's not founded. <laughs> so if if you've ever lived in Asia, the the words marijuana, you might as well be like the worst criminal in the world. They will lock you up. For, yeah, so you say you say marijuana. You say marijuana in Korea, you might as well be saying meth or cocaine or, or what worst thing you can think of. Yeah, it's just right. basically an education issue, you know, because the, the science is pretty clear that marijuana is, is, is not really harmful, especially in comparison to, let's say, alcohol, which is ubiquitous and everywhere. So right. anyway, we don't want to get too political. Um, maybe that's for another show. Well, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting project. If anyone's listening out there and you're in the United States and you've got the wherewithal to basically take action, then there you go. You've got like a nice business idea that you can chase down. So, PJ, I think we're getting towards the end of our podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on so far. Um, we always like to wrap up with a Bitcoin price prediction, but you kind of alluded to that earlier, so that's fine. Kay, do you have uh, any more questions? And um, also, PJ, do you have anything else that you want to yeah. talk about? Yeah, I got one uh, other question about Blockhead. So I know um, you've got a varied background in medicine, like design, uh, fashion, law, finance. And I see you like you do marketing, um, media management, growth hacking, like you mentioned. 
um, PR and content creation. You also do operations consulting. So I'm wondering um, what your business primarily does, um, what you prefer to do, and if you're still using your legal background a lot to use your, are you using your law degree um, in at Blockheads or is it more in the PR and operations field? My, my law degree comes in more, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, it, it, it influences what are we going to say and how are we going to say it regarding this project, especially here in the U.S. Um, other than that, it doesn't really play a role other, unless I'm doing something, you know, finance or legally, you know, explicitly law related when it comes to con- contracts. So business sort of ebbs and flows. So for in terms of category like for the past year and a half it's been almost primarily almost exclusively marketing kind of strategy growth hacking um community building um there's a couple projects that we're pitching out to to do more on the operations uh you know operation sign more and kind of like the interaction of you know finance accounting and, and and sales and the operability of of those two and how they interact um but i'd say primarily it's been marketing um recently are you just a kind of a one person do it all team or do you have other people working for you or are you thinking of just keeping it as yourself so it's i i do a lot of kind of like run you know make sure everything's in place i have a team with me um I work a lot with, you know, I have a team of solid, tried and true contractors um, when it comes on the marketing side, um, you know, very experienced in terms of digital, online, um, you know, promoting and having reputations in, all, in different communities on Reddit, um, especially when it comes to comes to blockchain. So it, it just depends on the project in terms of how how big of a team, you know, you'll work with. It's been as big as 12, um, but typically, you know, I'll bring on five people with me um, for kind of like a, your standard engagement. Okay, Yeah, it makes cool. sense. So it's All like right. an agency model and uh, you kind of scale when you need to get big and then you just you hire, bring on more people as you need them and you hire for the job to get the job done. Is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? Yep, that's exactly how I do it. <laughs> All that's right. perfect. All right. Well, was, thanks, for, was... thanks for the call. Yeah, well, PJ, it was great talking to you today. I think uh, me and Josh learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot as well. Um, and we'll leave you with the last word. Do you have any last closing comments or things you'd like to say? Yeah, no, I just want to thank the both of you for having me on here and this opportunity. And it's it's been great having this conversation. And, you know, I look forward to seeing um, blockchain and Bitcoin become more uh, ever-present and, you know, throughout the globe so i just want to do my small part and i'm glad you guys are doing yours all right great well until next time josh and i will see you on the dark side side of of the Thank you for joining us on Dark Side of the Hoddle Moon. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Also, be sure to join our Telegram group, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and follow us on BitChute and YouTube where you can find all the episodes as well as highlights from previous episodes. You can also visit us at darksideofthehoddlemoon.com. Hoddle Moon!